The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. Now today, like um, I would, was saying, we uh, are continuing in our series called Greater, um, believing that God is good even when life is not. And, uh, and I don't say this very often, um, but I'll say it today. If you weren't here with us last weekend, then you really do need to go online. You need to listen or watch last week's message because the messages within this series, they are very, very connected to one another. And the truth is, is that even if this series doesn't speak to you and in your moment of life right now, the truth is all of us know someone who would actually benefit from listening to what it is that we are talking about today. So what do you do when you are facing a crisis of faith? And with everything that's in you, you want to actually believe that God is good, but life is doing a pretty good job of telling you otherwise. Now, last week we said everything we're going to talk about in this series, it really revolves around answering two questions that we've all asked at some point in our lives, which are simply, okay, God, why are you allowing this, and will I actually make it through it? And we said that for all of us, when we find ourselves in the midst of what we're calling one of these greater than moments in this series— all of us, we experience a number of different things. The first is that all of us, we get angry, right? Some of us, we get angry at ourselves. Some of us, we actually get angry at each other. We get angry at our family. Some of us get angry at God. Some of us, we get angry at everybody. The second thing that we said is that we all experience the temptation to run or to leave, Right? Because we just kind of naturally think it's going to be better next time. It's going to be different next time. We're always tempted to give up. We're always tempted to, to give in. You're tempted maybe to just try to drink it all away or just take something to ease the pain or numb the pain. And you know that's not the healthy thing to do. It's not the right thing to do. Um, you know that doing that, all that's going to do is just create more pain, just different pain. It's just going to create a different kind of tension in your family or in your relationships. But still, that's the temptation that every single one of us face. And, and the third, of course, finally, is the temptation that we face is to compare. To compare what's happening in our lives and in our families to what's going on around us. Because it feels like everybody else is having the family that we're supposed to have. Everybody else is having the relationships that we're supposed to have. Everybody else has the marriage that we're supposed to have. And so, of course, we're jealous, right? Of course, we're, we're a little bit resentful. And, of course, we get angry. So what do you do? When you're stuck, when you're hurting, and there really is nothing that you can do in your circumstance. Last week we said one of the things that's helpful is actually for us to open up this book right here and to kind of look in here. And last week we did that, we looked at a portion of the life of a man by the name of John the Baptist, and we said the reason why that's actually so helpful to do that is because this is the record of the God, of the Savior who is faithful. He is faithful yesterday, he is faithful today, and he promises he will be faithful forever. So if he has been faithful to somebody in here, that means that he is going to be faithful to you and to your circumstance as well. And we discovered something else that I heard a lot about from a number of you via email over this past week, which is the whole idea that the presence of adversity in our own life does not mean that there is an absence of God. That it is actually possible that there is actually no conflict whatsoever with the whole idea that God loves you, that he loves me, 
And yet at the same time that there would be adversity in our life. Now emotionally when we are in a greater than moment, even though we might know that logically, even though we might believe that, the truth is emotionally in these moments that is a very, very difficult truth for us to wrestle with. And that is frankly what makes these greater than moments so confusing, so perplexing, and frankly so potentially damaging to our faith because a relationship is always emotional, right? A relationship is never just a logical thing. So to deny our emotions, to deny our feelings, that is in no way helpful. The challenge is not to deny what it is that we feel, but to understand, rather, that there is more than just our feelings that determine what it is that's actually true about our relationships, especially our relationship with God. In fact, if I were to conclude, right, that God does not exist, simply because God is not doing what I want God to do, then the truth is my own children should also conclude that I don't exist. Right? My son should be walking around the house saying there is no dad, there is no dad, there is no dad. If cooperation were really proof of existence. Right? Because again, there is no conflict. Again, we know this logically. Emotionally, this is hard to us get our hearts around. But logically, there is no conflict with the idea that God loves you and at the same time that you are facing adversity in your life right now. The way that we said all this last week is like this. That God's silence, it does not equate to his absence. It does not mean that he does not care and it does not mean that he is angry with you. And the reason why every single one of us, the reason why we kind of almost instinctively jump to these ideas, these thoughts, and these feelings is because of a little bit of what I'm going to call American thinking, which we'll talk about in just a few moments. And again, I'm just like you. I I deal with the very same things you do. I have the same questions that you do. I I wrestle with the same feelings of fear that, that you do. Because I live in the same world that you live in, where we all just kind of think that everything should just somehow work out. And, and again, to, to equate the fact that it doesn't always to being a lack of love from God or a lack of the presence of God in our lives it is just wrong, right? It is just wrong, and, and it does not mean that when things don't go our way, it does not mean that God has somehow abandoned us. And again, what helps me, what helps me personally when I find myself in, in these kind of moments it is when I, I look into the scriptures themselves, and again, if I can find somebody whose situation or circumstance in here parallels my own, right, then that helps me. Especially if I can find that individual in the New Testament specifically. Because the men and the women who bring us this, who bring us the New Testament of the Bible, these are men and women who were very, very familiar with the presence of adversity in their life. In fact, the men and women who bring to us today the testimonies of Jesus and the testimonies of our faith throughout the first, second, third, fourth centuries, all of them were men and women who were very, very familiar with adversity. And in fact, somehow the adversities that they faced, it did not silence them, but instead it actually fueled them and made them even more adamant to make sure that the testimony of the gospel of Jesus made out of their own personal circumstance and into our culture and into our world today. And perhaps one of the best examples in here of that happening in the life of another person comes in the life of the man that we know of as the Apostle Paul. And the thing that makes the Apostle Paul such a good example of this is that the Apostle Paul, he did not know Jesus before he was crucified. He never saw Jesus perform all the miracles that the disciples witnessed. 
The, the Apostle Paul, in fact, he learned what he knew about Jesus the very same way that you and I did, by hearing about him from other people who knew him. And by all accounts, the Apostle Paul becomes one of Jesus' most famous and most influential of his followers. In fact, it's the Apostle Paul who actually does more to spread the gospel of Jesus throughout our world, arguably, than anybody else throughout history. And yet, even though the Apostle Paul was right in the very center of God's will, and God was working through him and working through his life, something really bad happened to the Apostle Paul. And he was actually stricken with some kind of a physical ailment. Now, we don't know exactly what it was, but what we do know from reading his letters to us is this. We know that it wasn't going away, and we also know that whatever it was, it was actually a hindrance. Don't miss this. It was a hindrance to him doing what it is that God had actually called the Apostle Paul to do. Right? So imagine being the Apostle Paul, and you're an adult, and you have this incredible, life-changing experience, right? and you literally hear God saying to you, I want you to start doing this. Right? So you spend your life, you give your life to following Jesus and serving Jesus and doing whatever it is that God calls you to do. And then after that happens, right, after you do that, all of a sudden, this thing inflicts you. Right? This thing happens to you that you feel like is actually preventing you from accomplishing what God told you he wanted you to do. So, of course, the Apostle Paul is wrestling with God. Of course, he laments to God. Of course, he struggles to God, with God. And he says, okay, God, how could you? And God, why would you? And God, I thought we were on the same team. God, this doesn't even make sense. Why would you allow this to happen to me? And as a result of all of that wrestling, that the Apostle Paul actually does, that he gains a very, very valuable insight that he actually shares with us in one of the letters that he wrote. And it's this very valuable insight that gives to us today a truth, but also a promise. And this is really important. Hear me on this. The truth that the Apostle Paul tells us is actually not for you. But the promise is... The reason why this is so important is because, like I said to you last week, I'm just like you are, right? I have these same moments that you have. And when I am in my greater than moments, the thing that I actually struggle with the most is this idea right here. It's shame, right? Because when I'm feeling like that's happening to me, the first questions I have in my own heart, okay, are like, God, does this mean all of a sudden that I'm expendable to you? I mean, are me and my family, do we just not matter to you anymore? God, are we expendable somehow? God, did I do something, did I unknowingly do something to make you angry with me? God, maybe you don't actually feel about me the way that I thought that you feel about me. Maybe that's true. Maybe I was just wrong about all this. That's how I feel, right, when I'm in one of these greater than moments. And again, I share that with you just because as your pastor, I want you to know I'm the same way you are. I have those same fears and those same questions that you do. But see, what God actually tells us in here is that every single one of us, we have an enemy. We have a spiritual enemy. And God says to us in here that his mission, that enemy's mission, is to steal and to kill and to destroy, to actually take away from you all the things that God wants to give to you. So God will give you wisdom and insight from his word. The enemy wants to take that from you. 
God gives to you the gift of faith in your Savior Jesus. The enemy wants to take that from you. God will actually give, your Heavenly Father will give to you a moment of peace in the midst of terrible circumstance. Well, the enemy, he actually wants to take that from you. And one of the ways, one of the ways that the enemy does that, one of the most difficult and confusing and destructive tools that Satan actually has in his arsenal is to take God's own words and actually twist those words and use the very words that God intends to be words of life in our lives to use those as words of death. To use those to actually cause harm or confusion or hurt or pain. And the truth is, this shouldn't surprise us at all because Satan's been doing this from the very beginning. But he loves to do this to us. In fact, he loves to actually use other followers of Jesus many times, inadvertently, to do this in our very lives today in our world. Now, I'm going to give you an example of how this happens from the section of Scripture that we're going to look at together, which is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. If you take out those Bibles that are in front of you right now, it's on page 1,806 in those Bibles that are in the seat back either in front or behind you um, right now, if you happen to be in the first row. This is a very familiar passage of Scripture to many of us. And in this passage of Scripture, the Apostle Paul, he begins by saying these words. He says, To keep me from becoming conceited, because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh. Right? So who is the Apostle Paul actually talking about in this verse? He's talking about himself, isn't he? Right? He's not saying, hey, Joe... I know why that happened to you. Hey, Joe, I know why you have that thorn in your flesh right now. Hey, Joe, I know why it is that you're experiencing what it is that you're experiencing right now. To which I might say, oh, yeah, you, you, well, if you know, tell me, please, because in this moment that I'm in right now, I don't really know a whole lot of anything that's going on. Oh, yeah, I know why it is. It's so that you won't become conceited. Are those words of life? Or are those words of death? See, Satan loves to take whatever he can find that God actually intends to bring hope or goodness or peace or faith or comfort, anything that's good in our lives, and twist it and use it to cause hurt or pain. And see, the truth is, Satan has been up to this from the very beginning. In fact, we even see in, in the Gospel of Matthew an indication where Satan tries to do this with Jesus himself. Because Matthew tells us that Satan actually appeared to Jesus with the very intention of causing Jesus harm. And he says to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Satan's intention in that time is to use the very words of God, right? In this case, words of hope from Psalm 91. Words that God gave to his people to remind his people that he is their source of protection and their defender in times of trial and times of suffering. Satan's intention is to use these words as a curse. That if Jesus would have actually listened to, would have removed all hope from every single one of us. And see, the truth is, you and I can be in the very same, albeit less significant, circumstance if we are not careful in how it is that we actually speak to each other when you and when I, when we are actually in 
one of these greater than moments. Verse 7 again. To keep me, the Apostle Paul says, so he's talking about himself, from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. So Paul actually refers to this thing, right again, we don't know what it is, as a thorn in his flesh, but he tells us it's there to torment him. And the word that's used and translated as torment, it literally means to beat up. It's meant to convey the picture of a person who is literally just hit over and over and over and over again. And Paul also tells us very specifically that this thing in his life, right, it comes from Satan. It doesn't come from God. And Satan's intention is to use this thing in Paul's life to destroy Paul's faith. But God, he actually takes what Satan intends for harm, and God actually uses it not to destroy Paul's faith, but actually to point Paul to the one who his faith is in, in the very first place. And so Paul says this in verse 8. He says, three times, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it, this thorn in the flesh, away from me, right? And these three times are not Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. No. Rather, this is an indication that these are probably three different seasons of the Apostle Paul's life, three different periods of his life where this thorn, whatever it was, was so bad that he gets down on his knees and he says to God, God, you've got to take this from me. I can't keep doing what you've called me to do. I can't keep standing up here. I can't keep writing. I can't keep preaching. I can't do what you've called me to do, God, if you don't fix this. I I can't take this anymore. So three different seasons of his life. And Paul was like, okay, God, I've had enough. I've had enough. You've got to do something. Now, some of you in here today, you have been told that the reason why you're experiencing what you're experiencing in your life right now, the reason why your circumstance isn't changing, the reason why you're not getting any better, the reason why you're in the circumstance that you're in right now is because you do not have enough faith. Now, I don't believe that. In fact, I can't actually tell you what I think about that because we're in church right now and that wouldn't be helpful. But the reason why I don't believe that is because the Apostle Paul had more faith than all of us put together. Right? The Apostle Paul was actually a man of extraordinary faith. And he pleaded with God to do something that would actually allow him to more faithfully do the very thing that God had called him to do. And so simply for, for us to simply try to faith God into doing what it is that we want God to do, not only is that whole idea just kind of ridiculous, the truth is Paul would tell us it's horrible theology. Right? It is horrible theology. In fact, the problem with the whole idea of problem-free Christianity is that it's not actually Christianity at all. It is not the faith of the Apostle Paul. It wasn't even the faith of Christ himself. The scriptures are very, very clear that Jesus himself lived a life that was filled with loneliness. He lived a life that was filled with social isolation, with hurt, with pain, even with literal torture. And that's why. That's why Paul tells us that after three times, 
of pleading with God, Jesus finally responds to Paul and he says this in verse 9, my grace, my grace is sufficient for you. See, one of the most powerful promises that God makes to us in the entire scripture is that he promises to give to every single one of us his grace in our time of need. In fact, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 says this, Let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we actually need it the most. And so God says to the Apostle Paul, no, no, I'm not going to take that thing away from you, but instead I am going to give you the grace you need to sustain you through it. When you're tired and you're weak and you're lonely, the Apostle Paul says to you, I'm going to give, your Heavenly Father says to you, I'm going to give you the grace that you need to sustain when you're beat up and you're suffering, your Heavenly Father says to you, I'm going to give you the grace to sustain. When you're alone and you wonder why you're not getting better, the Apostle Paul tells you, your Heavenly Father promises he will give you the strength and the grace that you need to sustain I'm going to give you, your Heavenly Father says, what I have promised to give to every single person who will lean hard on me during their time of suffering and questioning, which is the grace that you need to carry you through. You see, the truth is, this is where we all live, isn't it? Because every single one of us in this room this morning all of us have something in our lives that we wish God would change right now. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Are we going to shake our fist at God and just walk away? Or are we going to say to our Heavenly Father, I will take no for an answer but you have got to give me the grace I need to get me through this. Paul said, I'm not going to walk away because my faith isn't actually based in an answer to my prayer anyway. My faith is based in the fact that Jesus is the Savior of the world. My faith is based in the fact that Jesus has forgiven me of my sin. My faith is based in the fact that Jesus has actually risen from the grave. So no, I am not going anywhere. But God, if you do not remove this thing from me, I am trusting that your grace is going to be there to carry me through because I cannot do this without you. And this is why Jesus says what he says next. To the Apostle Paul in the second half of verse 9. He says, my power, Jesus says, my power is made perfect 
in weakness. Literally, Jesus is saying, my power reaches its full potential. My power is at its greatest, Jesus says, when you are the weakest. In other words, Paul, I haven't forgotten about you. Paul, you are right in the very center of of my will right now. But Paul, the answer to your question of will I remove that thing that is hurting you? Will I change your circumstance? Will I deal with that adversity in your life? The answer to that, Paul, right now, is no. But my promise to you is that my grace will be there to carry you through. So what are you going to do if you're the Apostle Paul? And God, who you're serving with all of your heart and all of your strength and all of your soul, just says no to you. Well, if we were to ask the Apostle Paul that question ourselves, he actually tells us. He says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. He says, therefore, then, I'm going to boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Why in the world would you do that, Paul? Because when I am weak, right, Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I actually delight in weaknesses, right? In other words, what Paul is telling us is this. Listen, embracing my inability in a greater than moment That's actually a prerequisite. That is a prerequisite to experiencing Jesus' ability in my life. See, that's what the Apostle Paul is telling us in this text. Now, here's why this is so important. Because for some of us here, regardless of how old we are, right, when we are in those unchangeable circumstances of life, we feel shame, we feel embarrassment, and we are tempted to run and to hide and to pretend and to lie. But the Apostle Paul tells us it is precisely in our weaknesses, in our greater than moments, that Jesus' power is actually most evident and most obvious in our lives. That's why he says in verse 10, that is why for Christ's sake, I actually delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and in difficulties. Because when I am weak, then... I am strong. To which we would want to say to the Apostle Paul, but Paul, that's not how I was raised, right? That's not what it means to be an American. And to which the Apostle Paul might very well say to us. And perhaps that's why you're not experiencing the grace of God in the situation that you are struggling with the most. Because, see, the truth is when I am weak, I am actually most dependent. And that is very uncomfortable for me. But God, he values dependence over independence. And God has actually opted for me to be dependent on him rather than self-sufficient in the eyes of the world. Because it is precisely when I am at my weakest that the grace of God actually fills me and it fills you and it covers you in Christ's strength. Not in your strength, in the strength of Jesus Christ to carry you Now, the truth is, I have no idea what's going on in each one of your lives today. And you know what would make me happiest, actually, is if after the service you came up to me and you told me that this sermon was completely unapplicable to you. If you told me that this sermon had nothing to say to you today, I would be thrilled. That would be awesome. Right, but for some of you who are here today, some of you are sitting in those seats and you're trying to figure out if this is God actually saying something to you right now. You're trying to figure out if God is preparing you to either hear no for an answer or you're pretty sure 
that God has already said no. And this is kind of the punctuation mark on all of that. Now, if that's you, I want to give you three kind of statements that we learn today from what it is the Apostle Paul tells us. And I want you to use these three statements to guide and direct your conversations with Jesus over these next days and weeks and months, maybe years to come, as you talk about this greater than moment with him. The first is simply this. Your Heavenly Father, he actually cares about your circumstances. In fact, one of the things that we see very, very clearly in this text is that the Apostle Paul, he never gets hung up on the thing that most of the time we get hung up on so easily, which is the question of whether or not what I'm experiencing right now is a part of God's will. No, the Apostle Paul just says, he just asks God to change it. He says, God, these things are not good, change them. Right? When life hurts, you ask God to stop the hurt. When the relationship is broken, you ask God to fix the relationship. As a child of the Heavenly Father, you always have the right to ask God to change your circumstance. The second thing that we learn is this. If God actually says no to you, that does not mean that he does not care about you. In fact, when he says no to you, the truth is, the truth is that is in no way a reflection of your faith or the quality of your faith or the depth of your faith. It's not some indication of hidden sin in your life. In fact, I would tell you this, and you know this, it takes far more faith to accept God's no than it ever does to accept a yes, doesn't it? Third is this. It's actually in our trials and it's in our weaknesses that Jesus is most visible in our lives. Because that is exactly when our Heavenly Father, that's when our Savior, gets to do the things in our lives that other people see and they say, listen, only God, only God could do that. Only Jesus could do that. In fact, think about it this way. If you take a moment right now and you think about your favorite Bible story, your favorite Bible character, right? Let me tell you what the story of their life was not about. This was not the story of a person who woke up every single day and magically everything was just good for them every single day, was it? No, instead, this is the story about a person or a group of people who lived life, and in life they faced challenges, in life they faced adversities, in life they, they had obstacles, they had walls. And when those walls, when those problems seemed like they were bigger than what they could handle, when it looked absolutely hopeless and helpless, it was in that moment that God showed up. And when he showed up, he brought with him his grace, and he poured out his grace on that person or those people, frankly, in spite of themselves. See, that's the story that you're thinking of because that is exactly what our Heavenly Father does. And even if you think about your own life right now, isn't it true that if you think back to a time when you feel like God was closest to you or working most in your life, isn't it true that that was actually a moment of weakness and not a moment of strength? And then lastly is this. Never forget that your Savior, my Savior, the Savior of the entire world, that he faced a not-too-dissimilar situation than what it is that we are talking about together throughout the course of this series. Because all four Gospels are crystal clear that on the night before Jesus was actually crucified, 
that he was lamenting to his heavenly father, that he was struggling with his heavenly father, that he was wrestling with him. In fact, Luke actually tells us what that wrestling sounded like, that Jesus, he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them. Now, the them in this is actually his own disciples who fell asleep in the midst of Jesus begging his heavenly father to come and to help them. And Luke tells us that Jesus knelt down and he prayed. And when Jesus knelt down and he prayed, he said this. He said, Father, if you are willing, which means I know that you are able. Think about that for a moment. Father, if you are willing, because I know that you are able. If you are willing, Father, would you please take this cup from me? But if you choose to say no, I will accept it because not my will but your will be done and see the truth is this every single one of us who are here today and who call ourselves a follower of Jesus we are grateful that our heavenly father actually said no to his own son in that garden and see what we you and I today what we learn from that garden what we learn from the Apostle Paul, and what we learn from the stories of our own family members, our own friends, is that Jesus' sustaining grace, Jesus' sustaining grace in your life, in my life, it always begins not with my will, but with thy will be done. Let me pray for you this morning. Heavenly Father, the truth is you are the only one who knows where this message lands for every single one of us today. And Father, you know just like I do that there are men and women in this room right now um, who have been or who are in the midst of a greater than moment in their life right now. And Father, I know that they have prayed to you. I know that they have begged you. Father, I know. I know that. You know that. But Father, I also know um, that at some point you just don't even know what to pray anymore. You don't know what to say. And you question whether or not it's even worth it. And so Father, in this moment, I want to ask you on their behalf that you would act. And so Father, I pray, would you please change circumstance? Father, would you please restore what is broken? Would you please heal the relationship? Would you please change the words that were said? Please heal hearts that are hard. Father, would you please cure the illness? Would you heal the disease? Would you please restore the body that is broken? And Father, please, if the answer is not yet, or Father, if perhaps the answer is even going to be no, would you please give the grace that we need, that I need, to accept that answer? 
Jesus, for the person that's here this morning, and if they're honest, would say that they are not your follower. They, they would not call themselves a follower of Jesus. I would ask that in their life, in this greater than moment right now, that you would actually do what you have done so many times throughout history, so many times in our own world today, that you would actually use that crisis that they are experiencing right now, their circumstance, that you would use their adversity to actually point them, that the Holy Spirit would use that to create faith in their heart, that you would actually use that situation to draw them close to you, that they would know that you really are their Savior. And that they do have a Heavenly Father who loves them. And Father, this morning, as we each prepare to receive that very gift of love from you to us today, Father, we ask that you would hear us as we personally and silently confess our sin to you. The good news of the gospel is that your heavenly father is not angry with you. He has not abandoned you. He is aware and he does care. And in this moment especially, your heavenly father is not silent because his words to you today are as far as the east is from the west. So far have I removed your sin from you. You are truly forgiven in Jesus' name.